2: Are we sad? A bet for clean
1: nuclear power hits a milestone in France, and Andrew Maine explains how he let us have AI conversations with Ada Lovelace and the Hulk. This is the Daily Tech News for Tuesday, July 28th, 2020 in Los Angeles. I'm Tom Merritt.
0: And from Studio Redwood, I'm Sarah Lane.
3: And uh, I'm the show's producer, Roger Chang.
1: Author of The Girl Beneath the Sea, Andrew Maine is with us. How's it going, Andrew?
3: Fantastic.
1: Uh, you've been working with, uh, OpenAI and allowing us to talk with any author that's not alive. That's pretty cool.
3: Any person, any, any, any person. person,
1: right. Not just an any, author. Anybody. Yeah.
3: Fictional or otherwise. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Uh, so we will talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Uh, we just talking about how Andrew came about that. Uh, we may, uh, on good day internet, have david foster wallace's favorite movies uh so if you want that wider conversation become a member patreon.com slash dtns let's start with a few tech things you should know
0: spotify updated its group sessions beta feature to let up to five premium subscribers listen to music or podcasts together all members of the listening party's host and guests can control playback they can skip tracks or episodes and then add items to the queue you know, alone together. Spotify first launched group sessions in beta back in May.
1: Google announced plans to build an undersea cable to connect the UK, Spain and the United States. It's Google's fourth privately owned undersea cable. Now that will help Google save some money, but an industry insider told DTNS the average user will see nothing from this, although it is nice to see new fiber in the water. An example of a cable that might actually impact your general use is the Oman to Perth cable to be completed in December 2021. That will be the only cable directly connecting europe middle east and africa to australia and avoiding routes through the south china sea
0: intel announced monday that its chief engineering officer dr venkata murthy Renduchintala, will leave the company on august 3rd his technology systems architecture and client group will be split into five teams technology development manufacturing design engineering architecture and supply chain management all reporting to intel ceo bob swan
1: Netflix received the most Emmy nominations of any studio, digital or otherwise, with 160. Ozark alone had 18, though HBO's Watchmen had more than that. Amazon got 31 nominations total. Hulu 26, Apple TV Plus 20, Disney Plus 19, mostly for The Mandalorian. Quibi got 10, Oculus got 3, and YouTube got 2. Look at Quibi.
0: Folding at Home and Rosetta at Home both now support ARM64 devices, meaning you can run them on Android devices, Raspberry Pi devices and more. Both projects are being used for research on the coronavirus. Good Day Internet has a Folding at Home team that you can join if you haven't already.
1: And it's time to check in on SARS-CoV-2 vaccine progress. Uh, As we mentioned, Phase 3 vaccine trials are the ones used to demonstrate effectiveness in a large group of people, and usually the last step before a vaccine can be submitted for approval for use. Vaccines from AstraZeneca, Sinovac, China National Biotech are all already in Phase 3. And Monday, a vaccine from Moderna began its 30,000-person Phase 3 trial at more than 100 sites in the United States. A vaccine from can is also approved for use by the Chinese military and in negotiations with several countries to begin its phase three trial. All right, let's talk about CES.
0: Let's do it. The Consumer Technology Association, who are the folks who put on CES each year, announced that there will be no physical event in January 2021 after initially planning a hybrid in-person and virtual show. Instead, an all-virtual format will let exhibitors and ented- attendees and also the press engage through online talks and meetings. The CTA says it consulted with more than 10,000 attendees. And other stakeholders in the show and found out many just didn't want to physically attend due to health concerns about the virus. Uh, the CEO uh, Shapiro, uh, unfortunately I forget his first Gary. name, <laughs> Gary Shapiro said, quote, We realized with no vaccine, it's just not possible to have a physical CES. Our event has been primarily an indoor event. If it were a financial decision, we would go forward. He cited a shortage of physical tests as one element of the decision as well. The 2022 CES is still planned as a hybrid physical and digital event based on what the CTA learns from this coming one.
1: So uh, we're all very sad that we will not be able to eat the uh, shriveled apples in the press uh, luncheon kits. And
0: uh... and get kind of jostled, <laughs> you know, going through the LG big booth. And I mean, that's the thing is when we because DTNS has been going for some years now, and you know, we've all been there in in, in years past, we're all very well aware of how crowded it can get, uh, particularly when the show opens to public. So the whole idea of it being hybrid, when we heard about this a couple months ago, which was what a lot of shows were sort of mulling over, it was like, okay, well, that's smart. But how would that even work? I mean, it's a—it would be just a completely different experience. You'd have to, you know, you'd have to trickle people in really slowly, and you know, force people out at a certain time so other people could come through. It sounded like a mess to me.
1: Yeah, and 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 it was at a time when we thought the infections were starting to trail off. So January felt like well, maybe by then it won't be so bad. And then, of course, we we saw some resurgences. And I think that's why the CTA d- decided to make the decision it did. Uh, DTNS didn't go to CES for the first few years. And what we missed was getting in touch with people, having people that were there easily just come by and be on the show uh, that might not be able to otherwise. And if you're not going to have a lot of people there, I was still wondering, like, even if I feel safe, if am I going to get that benefit out of going? So they've, they've taken the decision out of my hands uh, for this year. Andrew, as as someone who consumes the news coming out of CES, is is this something that changes your mind at all about it?
3: I, no, I mean, I don't, I, I think that sort of like some of the more interesting cycles sort of started to happen outside of CES besides like, you know, how, you know, the resolution of TVs, you know, so I kind of think that maybe it's for the better.
1: Yeah, to sort of. I, I I think it's probably fine. Uh, it we're going to get all the the same amount of news, and like I said, having covered CES uh, locally without being in Las Vegas the first few years, I never felt like I was missing out on the news. I was missing out on on just meeting the people, and that's that's just something we're used to right now.
0: Well, yeah, and, there's, and there's there's an energy thing that you just yeah, pick yeah. up in person, which is you know, I think that's when people talk about okay, well, we can you know many of us can work remotely. Well, we're all working remotely now, but folks who did not have to, and now are forced to have, you know, come to the conclusion at, at sometimes, oh, this is actually better for me, or this is easier than I thought it would be. So as somebody who's been to the show many years in a row... I wonder how we'll feel disconnected if we do at all.
3: I I'd say it, There are a lot of these smaller shows. Like I have a friend who's an electrical engineer, and he talks about going to like, oh, I went to this optics show or this other thing here. And there's stuff, some consumer ready, and some amazing stuff there that you might never see at a CES. And so it might be kind of interesting to see if the shift is covering smaller sort of industry sort of shows where mm-hmm. it's not all about the LG booth. You know, right, and that's, right. you know.
1: Well, uh, let's talk about nuclear fusion. Fusion is different than fission. Fission is the one that splits atoms and uh, releases radioactivity. Fusion combines atoms, releasing a lot of energy with less radioactivity quite quite a, a small amount of radioactivity if you can get fusion to work the idea is you have an abundant source of energy with no carbon emissions using very small amounts of fuel no physical possibility of a meltdown uh, and that just sounds better to a lot of people the world's biggest nuclear fusion project ITER, I-T-E-R, has entered its five-year assembly phase in St. Paul-les-Durans, southern France. ITER is a collaboration between 35 partner countries, including Switzerland, the UK, and the European Union, which provide 45% of the funding, as well as funding and other contributions from China, India, Japan, South Korea, Russia, and the United States. ITER will confine hot plasma in a structure called a tokamak to control fusion reactions. If all goes on schedule, it would go online December 2025 and produce 200 megawatts of power. That's enough for about 200,000 homes or so. Uh, so essentially, this is a very expensive proof of concept. And the hope is that more affordable commercial designs could be made based on ITER. Uh, but Andrews, we were talking before the show, there are already a lot of commercial efforts happening as well right now.
3: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of other theories on how you could achieve sustainable fusion. So there's a number of startups with different approaches. You know, the, the ITAR, you know, idea, it's sort of like the DOE has been doing for years here. It's one approach and we haven't been putting a lot of money at different sort of ways to do it. And there's a lot of capital like Bill Gates is funding, like at least one or two different ones. And you've got, I think, some of the Google founders are doing that too. So there's a lot of other efforts out there. And that's what's exciting now. It's the first time we're trying different approaches towards doing it. Because the Takamok design, You know, one of the original people worked on that, Robert Bussard, later on went to say, like, no, I don't I think this is a dead end.
1: Yeah. And and it is an old design. Uh, and mm-hmm. not to say they shouldn't try it, but I wouldn't put all my hopes on this being not only that this be the one that works, but this being the only one that could work uh, because there's a lot of efforts out there. But it's interesting to keep an eye on and know that, OK, we're, they're finally building it. This, they've been talking about this for a long time. They've been doing the pre-work on it for a long time. Uh, and so they're, they're finally having parts uh, show up and start to be assembled. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on it.
0: A study by the U.S. National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, has found that wearing face masks that adequately cover the mouth and nose causes the error rate of many facial recognition algorithms to rise between 5 and 50 percent. Black masks were more likely to cause errors than blue masks. And the more of the nose covered by the mask, the more the algorithm struggled to correctly identify a face. However, NIST's report only tested a type of facial recognition known as one-to-one matching, where an algorithm uh, uh, checks to see if a target's face matches the face on an ID, like a passport, often used at border control or airline boarding. The study didn't examine the kind of facial recognition used to unlock phones. They use depth sensors. And NIST also didn't evaluate one-to-many algorithms. Those are what's used in mass surveillance where a crowd is scanned to find matches with faces in a database already. NIST plans to evaluate one-to-many systems later this year as well as algorithms designed to recognize mask wearers.
1: I mean, if you look at this practically, I'm sure you could say like, oh, well, at, at a border or boarding an airline, I suppose you could ask someone to take their mask off briefly to be identified since it's one-to-one. Uh, one-to-many is a whole different problem. And and unlocking your phone, that's meant to make sure it doesn't unlock unless it absolutely has the right face. So that's a different problem too. There seem to be some, some improvements in that where people can train it with their mask and it starts to work. But the whole problem is you're missing half the data, right, Andrew? Like from the nose down, if you got a mask on, you can't measure those points and compare them. You have to work around the eyes.
3: I'm writing this down. Masks make facial recognition difficult. <laughs> uh, yeah, and these algorithms for facial recognition, I don't know if we've had any yet that were trained from nose up. And that's one of the things that you'll find out that all of a sudden, if you start saying, well, let's do a bunch of data sets where we train from, from the nose up to the eyes, you might we might be surprised all of a sudden the efficiency will go up. So if you say, yeah, we, we used an algorithm trained on the whole face, doesn't work when you can't see the whole face. That's shocking to nobody if you know what's going involved there. There are some really cool next generation algorithms that are actually able to sort of recreate depth data even from, you know, regular 2D cameras and stuff. And I think that's going to be exciting to see what happens when you start creating depth data and doing that. I think they're going to get way more capable. So, I, it's, it's a, I think it's a solvable thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think this is the the motivation to, to solve it, right? Is and you're yeah. already seeing the earliest companies claiming to have solved it, whether they have or not. Which means, you know, we'll we'll soon have workable uh, ways to solve this. And if and if you didn't quite get it, the reason you need depth sensing unlocking your phone is you don't want it to get fooled by a picture. Whereas mm-hmm. at the border, when you're doing one to one you're using a picture you're like there's a person I'm using a picture to match it so you don't care about that that aspect that's why you don't use depth sensing in the one-to-one uh, but all of this is going to get better and I and I think think you're right this is this is just a study that says yep <laughs> what we knew was difficult uh, sure is difficult uh, and now let's let's start talking about how to fix it. And and I wouldn't if you're someone who's thinking like, aha, facial recognition is finally defeated. I, I don't think this is in, in, in a, a situation where that's the case.
0: No, well, it go just go to go to it bo- needs to be reimagined at the very least.
3: We'll just go to barcodes on foreheads. Problem solved.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think some people might have uh, more of a problem with that than wearing a mask. I don't know.
0: Face tats are in, Tom.
1: <laughs> That's true. You got to make it cool and then everybody will just do it. <laughs> CNET's Stephen Shanklin has a great write-up on progressive web apps causing a conflict between Apple and Google. Progressive web apps, uh, or PWA, are, are basically websites that can be saved to your desktop or your home screen and work without a network and do app-like things like synchronized data and deliver push notifications. But web apps... Work in any browser, no matter what operating system you use, or at least they're meant to. Uh, Google's Fugu project is adding PWA capabilities to Chromium, which would then show up in Microsoft Edge, Opera, Brave, Google Chrome, and others. But Apple's Safari is not Chromium based, and on iOS, you can only use browsers based on Safari's WebKit engine. Uh, So adding something to Chromium doesn't make it work on iOS or Safari. So PWA features only show up in Safari or any iOS browser, even Chrome on iOS, if Apple adds the function to WebKit. And Apple recently published 16 web programming abilities it will not add to Safari because of privacy and security concerns. Among the features Apple doesn't support are notifications and prompts to install a PWA. Uh, you can go in and tell the Safari browser to install a PWA to your home screen as like, like it's an app, but you, you have to do it. They don't allow the website to prompt you to do that. Also, uh, data sync and access to the file system are more restricted on Safari because of security concerns. So we're getting a little uh headbutting here where the original iPhone didn't have an app store because Steve Jobs said uh, web apps will be all you need. This is the fulfillment of that, but Apple now pushing themselves as the more private and secure option and also operating in a fairly lucrative app store is a little more resistant to allowing PWAs to be as robust uh, as they are on the Chromium engine. Andrew, does this I, surprise you? Well, I mean, uh,
3: yes, Steve Jobs said that, but also he was looking to the point of having launched the iPhone. And the nightmare of trying to have an app store at launch was so terrifying for him. He's like, web apps are great. Love web apps. PWAs have <laughs> become very powerful, but, you know, the... the you know, Apple obviously wants to protect their ecosystem, but the other side of it is it's like there is that, well, yeah, we should hot, let you automatic notifications, all these other stuff. Apple worries. I think there's genuine security concerns there, like, you know, legit sort of issues with that because you can do a lot of really powerful stuff in there, but you can also do a lot of powerful stuff in there.
1: Yeah, so. I, I, I look to uh, i don't think google's being irresponsible by doing pwa uh but on on the other hand uh they don't have as much of a laser-like focus i looked at microsoft as sort of the arbiter on this sort of thing but now they've sunk their uh you know their their future into chromium on microsoft edge i think there certainly is a way to do pwa secure and just like there is a way to do a native app secure so i i hopefully this will be a productive tension is i guess where i'm trying to go with that
3: yeah I would say my I love Google, but often they will err on the wrong side when it comes to security. you know we saw that with you know the Google you know home device that was sending your voice unsecured, whatever because they don't sell security as a service Apple does and so that's why I like yeah sure they'll do it and I'm like, whoopsie sorry you know what are you gonna do not not buy Chrome? Oh wait, you don't pay for it anyway sorry. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Uh, so, and Firefox is another one to keep an eye on. Firefox is also a little more restrictive in the kind of progressive web apps it allows in the desktop version of Firefox. And and again, same thing. They are pushing privacy and security as their product. So, an- another one to look at to see okay, where might that line really be? Without any do, other kind of biases.
3: Hey, do folks. You use any PWA? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you use any? I've never installed one.
1: I have a PWA for the Financial Times. And Uh for a game called Gold Digger that was released with the original iPhone as a PWA. And I've had it on ever since. Those are the only two. Hey, folks, if you want to get all the tech headlines each day in about five minutes, be sure to subscribe to dailytechheadlines.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the
0: beach waves, feel the warm breeze relax,
1: and think about
0: work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to
1: Monday.com.
3: The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI.
2: on june 11th
1: OpenAI released its first api in public beta leveraging OpenAI's gpt3 model letting you train the model on any text and use that model and the api's general english training set for any natural language task janelle shane of ai weirdness used it to simulate we rate dogs uh, there's a startup acquisition announcement generator that will quote generate a tone deaf announcement post crafted by a neural network trained on hundreds of breathless press releases uh, but my favorite and i uh, Bias because he's my friend is Andrew Maines, AI writer uh, at AI Writer App. Andrew, what is AI Writer?
3: So I started working with the API uh, several months ago, doing a lot of different stuff with it. And I built out an app called AI Channels App, which was a conversational sort of app where you could talk to different fictional characters and stuff. And I knew releasing that was a bit further out, so I just wanted to come up with an easy way for people to interact, you know, with virtual characters, et cetera, via OpenAI's API. So I created AIWriter.app, and I went to OpenAI. I'm like, hey, I built this thing. Uh, Let me go through the process of releasing to the general public to let people use it and get feedback about it to find out what works, what doesn't work, et cetera. And so what you do is you just basically once you get access, you just send an email to anybody you want. You write, dear, I could write, dear Tom Merritt, you know, tell me the secrets of podcasting, and which I may do that right now. uh, And it will (laughs) write you back and say, hey, from that person, if if there's enough information about that person on the internet. It will respond to you, and so you get you can get very lengthy responses. I've had Benjamin Franklin write very lengthy, you know, responses to questions about you know being industrious, etc. It feels very
1: Benjamin Franklin. He was a lengthy. Very much, yeah,
3: yeah. So it'll write back in the style. Yeah,
1: and and what what I didn't realize until right before the show is that it does that uh, for any anybody. Like you, you don't have to have pre-trained your model on that person. Uh, you, you don't have a set of people that it's it's in the set of of people who are out there on the Internet. And if there's enough out there, they'll write back, which I, I think is is more fantastic than people could have realized.
3: Yeah, and that's because the OpenAI, their API, it's trained on so much data, so much historical data, so much you know stuff out there that for somebody like me to come in and make an app on top of it, it's very easy. I just have to be able to ask it the right question and say, this is the kind of response I want.
1: How good is so, it? Oh, sorry yeah, Sarah.
0: Yeah, I was well, uh, that's kind of the same question I was going to ask. What what have you noticed are the, you know, the biggest drawbacks or where it it seems to flounder or even fail?
3: Well, you know, the the like any text generator sort of model is that, you know, it will give you an answer no matter what. So, for instance, if you ask a question of something like its data set ends in October of 2019. So, if you ask it let's say what's COVID-19, It'll give you an answer, but it won't be an accurate one. It'll say it's like a Swedish punk band or whatever. <laughs> right. you know? So you you have to then, you have to be mindful if you write applications that are fact-based to say, okay, I need to build a fact filter that understands what to do that. So you know, I built an app that would basically, I figured out how to find out how competent it is on the response. And if it had a low competence, I could then go ask Wikipedia and then say, summarize this back to me and then do that. And so that's what you're, you're getting people to understand that think of it like, A really, really smart person who knows a lot of stuff that you can slip notes to under a door, Mm -hmm. and you ask them to do things back and forth. It's not going to do straight computational stuff. I mean, it could do some basic math and stuff, but if you ask it, you know, what's 1,000 times 5,000 divided by whatever, it may or may not give you an answer, but if you ask me, hey, what's a good equation for solving this problem, or, you know, uh, which weighs more, a loaf of bread or an airplane, it'll know, tell you, an airplane. And so, you have to sort of think a different mind, have a different mindset.
1: Is it is it something that that you see having a a use, you know, because I think a lot of people look at this and go, that's fun. I can talk to the Hulk. Cool. But what can I use this for?
3: So I, for an example, like with our, our friend, Justin Young, who works on doing political commentary, et cetera, and history, You know, I did some examples writing to Richard Nixon, asking him his points of view on stuff. Or you could write to people and say, you know, hey, what do you recommend? And you can get book recommendations, you know, from referencing people's stuff. You can ask Richard Feynman to explain to you how a quantum computer works and break it down on a simpler level. And that's kind of the really exciting part is that you could write to people and say, what do you think about this? It's not really what they think, but it takes all the information out there to say, let's synthesize what would have been that response from that person. And so, you know, I've had, you know, I had like examples of like, you know, you know, people, that, the Jane Austen book club fan, you know, or who are like, you know, like the fact responses. There's other people who have done similar stuff with this, finding out that it gives you really good answers and it will give you historical context. You ask Ben Franklin a question about something contemporary to his times, he will make references to stuff that you may have even been aware of. And you go, mm-hmm. wow, that's legit. Uh, by the way, virtual Tom Merrick gave me advice on the secret to podcasting.
1: And what, what, what did he say?
3: <laughs> yeah. Dear Andrew, if you want to get better at podcasting, here's what I do. Talk to someone on your podcast you're nervous about. Pick an editor or producer you know. Then for every person on your podcast, listen to how that person speaks to their guests. And then repeat the process a couple more times until you're okay talking to people.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's I not mean, bad advice.
0: Right. It, it's it's I don't know if that's exactly what you would say, Tom. But it, yeah, if I heard that advice, I'd be like, that's pretty smart. The first
1: yeah. few sentences, I was like, yeah, yeah that's kind of what I did. So, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I was thinking when you were, you were describing this, that this is an excellent and this, I'm certain this isn't the only use, but this is an excellent way to create more personal chat bots. All right. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I, if I'm uh bank of America, you know, I could have Benjamin Franklin be my, my customer assistance chatbot, right? Like I, I could, you could pick personalities that you can then make people feel a little more confident talking to, because you're not just talking to faceless Joan or, or Pat Mm -hmm. or whatever you're, you're talking to somebody. They're like, Oh, I I know that person. I, you know, if it's a a legal advice, you could have John Jay or some other historical Mm -hmm. person and and it lends it a a little more approachability and, and makes people maybe loosen up a little. You can do things,
3: too, like if uh, when people get API access, there's some tutorials and stuff and there's some videos. Some of the videos are ones that I've made to help explain it. And one of the things I show is how to make uh, a sarcastic chat bot or how to make, you know, one that has a sense of humor and stuff and how to give it more personality by providing examples. So it doesn't have to be a famous person. You might let's say you're a company at a you had an amazing customer service rep that was really good at deescalating and keeping people calm. You can give them those examples of how to handle this, and then all of a sudden – your chatbot is way better at dealing with people than feeling like a machine.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that that's really interesting. Uh, one last thing before we get off this topic on the AI alignment forum, uh, machine learning researcher Andy Jones suggested we may be in what they call an overhang for AI. An overhang being when you have the ability for a transformative use of a technology, but nobody's quite realized it yet. Uh, the overhang ends when that transformative use arises and surprises everyone with its capability. He thinks GPT three could be the trigger for those kinds of transformative uses. What do you think?
3: I I think that if you've been following AI research for the last couple of years, the rate at which you're getting new papers and new capabilities far exceeds the number of people trying to make use of them. And I, I we're seeing examples now like speech synthesis has had, in the last 18 months, light years of improvement, the ability to replicate individual voices and stuff and what's going on there. GPT-3 is an example of, uh, I've mentioned this before, I went through and looked at all the things and GPT-2 came out and they said, well, here's the problem, it can't do this and this. It was able to do all of those now. And so... There's a lot of great stuff before you get to what they talk about AGI, which is artificial general intelligence, which is like just talking to a person and be able to convince you that they are a person, which this could fool Turing tests, by the way. You could you've this is totally. I mean, in my your opinion,
1: version of Turing says that. I, I noticed. Yeah.
3: yeah. Well, I I took all the his, all the examples from historical Turing tests that it failed, but like that version of it. So that's not even that's but that doesn't get into the utility of it. So I think there's a lot of stuff out there right now that yes, absolutely we're at this point where as more and more people you're looking at every day if you follow the open AI or you follow some of the other people like uh, Greg Brockman you know who are work, you know who's the CTO if you follow the stuff he's retweeting of other people doing stuff you're seeing every day it's like Christmas does somebody come up with something new you know there's people creating plugins for figma to generate entire user interfaces they're trading racked code doing all kinds of stuff so I think so
1: taking a lot of shots that's how you hit
0: Hey, thanks to everybody who participates in our DTNS subreddit. You can submit stories. You could also vote on other stories. So they rise to the top at dailytechnewsshow.reddit.com.
1: Let's check out the mailbag.
0: Oh, let's. Uh, we had a great conversation with Andy Anotko, who was our guest yesterday, about, you know, <laughs> the wide world of sports in the time of Corona. And Greg and Brian actually also uh, also both wrote in and said fake crowds have been getting a lot of attention lately, but faked sounds in live sports not new. Pre-recorded and video game sounds have been part of live sports broadcast for a decade. Your chat with Andy about the virtual fans reminded Greg that BBC Radio 4 did a show in 2011 called The Sound of Sports. Great backgrounder on how live sports and video games are merging and influencing one another. So it's been around for a while. Uh, Greg says, I also first heard the story courtesy of the podcast 99% Invisible. Brian mentioned the same one of my favorite podcasts so I I Thank you for uh, reminding me that there's an old podcast that I should listen to of 99PI. Uh, Greg also says, as an aside, since you mentioned them in yesterday's show, I was involved in early experiments to add virtual down markers in NFL broadcasts. It was a partnership between the NFL, the technology developer, and the Canadian broadcaster that I was with at the time. We tried all sorts of things to test the tech, and things that worked well in testing would invariably go Mm -hmm. wrong when we were live on air. But... If you're going to mess up a live NFL broadcast, better to mess up in Canada, where only 5% of the audience will be upset rather than the U.S., where the NFL takes on a religious importance.
1: Uh, Go BC Lions. That's all I have to say. Thanks for sharing that, that story, Greg.
3: Unlike hockey for them.
1: (laughs) Yes, you would not test it with hockey. Glowing pucks. My goodness.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Shout out to patrons (laughs) at our master and grandmaster levels, including Dan Dorado Hankins, John Johnston, and Chris Smith. Also, special thanks to Andrew Main for being with us today. Great information, Andrew. You're obviously doing some really creative work. Let folks know where they can keep up with it.
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter at AndrewMaine or AndrewMaine.com. That's M-A-Y-N-E.
1: And, uh, folks, you can support us at any level, uh, and get perks. Uh, the best way to keep the show rolling, to keep us coming, uh, is to support us directly on Patreon. You get a wider version of the show or not. You can choose to have just DTNS if you want. Uh, and you can get special columns from Roger, live with it from Sarah, where she spends three months with technology, really putting it through its paces. That's all available at patreon.com slash DTNS.
0: If you've got feedback for us, we've got an email address to send it to. Feedback at DailyTechNewsShow.com. And if you can join us live, please do, Monday through Friday, 4.30 p.m. Eastern, 2030 UTC. You can find out more at DailyTechNewsShow.com slash live.
1: Back tomorrow with Scott Johnson. Talk to you then.
3: This show is part of the Frog Pants Network. Get more at FrogPants.com
1: you have enjoyed this program
3: <laughs> hi this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero from a local business to a global corporation partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do